Amen. Let's take our Bibles, turn to the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we're going to begin by just reading one verse, verse 6 tonight. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Again, we're still in our Keys of the Bible study, New Testament survey. We uh, kind of finished up last week, of course, with the Old Testament. We're going to kind of start, you know, kickstart the New Testament today. We'll look primarily at the Gospels uh, very briefly today. We'll spend most of our time in the book of Matthew. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Notice the Bible says, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, this is the question around which the whole entire New Testament pivots. It's really all, it, it kind of sets the stage for everything. And without a clear understanding of this particular question as it's being asked here and why it's being asked and ultimately even the answer of it, uh, we can never really understand the plan of God in the New Testament. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, it's very important and that we get a handle on that. And I trust before we're done with our New Testament study, you will have a handle on that and, and I'll be able to help you with that some. But as we get started here, as we look into the uh, New Testament survey, we need to realize a couple of things. First of all, the Bible, of course, is divided into Old Testament and New Testament. We know that. And uh, one of the major reasons for that division is to show us, uh, you know, uh, a very important truth. It's dealing with God's, uh, he's trying to help us see God's dealing with mankind. See, in the Old Testament, God deals with nations, and that's an important truth. Of course, the books that, uh, there are a number of books that carry men's names. You know, you think of Elijah, you think of uh, Malachi and certain others like that, Isaiah, Daniel, all of those kind of books. But in reality, even those men are dealing with the nation of Israel. They're writing about Persia or about <clears throat> Babylonia or possibly even Rome. But um, the fact is, is that they're still dealing with nations and God is dealing with nations in the Old Testament. Now, again... Uh, in the, uh, the government structure was set up, as we noted there in the book of Genesis and Exodus, we saw a group of people that were called out, and of course they became a great nation. And uh, Israel, of course, is the name of that nation. And so <clears throat> we're going to see that although there are a number of spiritual applications in the Old Testament, doctrinally we're dealing with uh, nations, where God is dealing with nations. And so that's important. The New Testament is different, however. He's not dealing with nations in the New Testament. The Lord's dealing with individuals in the New Testament. And so, again, we have this Old Testament, well, from your left to right, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, where God's dealing with nations. In the New Testament, He deals with individuals. And that's a real important uh, distinction. And again, uh, there's no wonder that God made sure that we had an Old and New Testament because those are very important distinctions. And again... The New Testament, God deals with individuals, and that's why salvation in the Old Testament is not the same as it is in the New Testament. And we talked about that. Of course, you know, somebody would say, you know, well, uh, wait a second. You know, you mean a person can't get saved in the Old Testament? Of course they can be saved in the Old Testament, but they're not saved the same way you and I are. God dealt with nations in the Old Testament. He deals with individuals in the New Testament. When you got saved, you were saved as part of a nation. When we get saved in the New Testament, we're, we're included in a body. Totally different. We're not included in a nation. We're not made part of a nation. We're made part of a body. They weren't made part of a body in the Old Testament. They were part of a nation. 
And so there's a big difference in how that took place. Now, again, people are being saved, but just not in the same way. And so <clears throat> it's, uh, that's, that's what we see there. So, again, the church is not a nation, and we are a body of individuals, and uh, we become corporately the body of Christ when we get saved and so forth and so on. So um, there are several things in the um, Old and the New Testament um, that are obviously unique to each individual part. So, you know, there's some things in the Old Testament that are unique to the Old Testament, some unique to the New Testament, all of those things, and obviously we've noted some of those along the way. Now, <clears throat> the order of the books, I think, is even important. You know, when you start thinking about the order of the New Testament and you look at the, the order of the New Testament, take your Bible maybe and look back to the beginning there. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this right now, but maybe before the end of the chapter we'll, we'll notice a few things and how God puts together the New Testament because we're dealing with New Testament survey. But you'll notice there's 20, 27 books. Uh, wait, 30, 60? Yeah, 27 books in the New Testament. And you'll notice here <clears throat> 39 and 27. You've got to keep them straight, right? 39 old, 27 new. 66 total. Now notice um, Matthew. You go right through there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And you can read right through those books. We're going to see that as we move along in those books that God puts those in an order for a reason. Now some people would say, I don't really believe that. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Especially when you consider that it wasn't until the Geneva Bible in the 12th century A.D., that ultimately the books were placed in this particular order. So before that, they weren't necessarily in the order that they are in your Bible. But still, I think that as you read through the New Testament, as we look at that New Testament, we're going to realize that God had something in mind along the way as that began to be put into a specific order. Now, again, if it's not in an order by God, then it's one of the biggest coincidences you'll ever run into. But you're going to see that along the way, as we, we take the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, as we begin to, to consider some of the other books there in the New Testament, the, you know, the books of, uh, of Acts, and then, of course, we have the Pauline epistles and the letters and so forth to his his, uh, to the preachers and things like that. And then you get into you know, Hebrews, James, and some of those books. Those books are placed in a perfect order, and they kind of help us move along in history. And we'll notice that a little bit maybe along the way. But in, anyway, it's an amazing thing. And so as we go along in our New Testament survey, we'll, we'll have an opportunity to kind of put that together and help you to see how the books, even the order of the books in the New Testament, have a tendency to kind of push us and and direct us and ultimately guide us and help us to understand the plan and the purpose that God has for both uh, the world, ourselves, and the universe. <clears throat> so today we want to talk primarily about the four Gospels. As we kick things off for our New Testament survey, we're going to look at the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the beginning of it, the four Gospels. And so we're going to take just a few minutes to look at those. Now primarily, as I said, we're going to be in the book of Matthew tonight. And so we're going to take a few minutes and consider it. And Matthew is a very dangerous book, okay? So I want you to understand that right off the bat. It's a transitional book, as we're going to see. Because it's transitional, it's, it's a number of false teachings, a number of heresies are born out of it. So you have to be very careful when you're dealing with the book of Matthew. Why is it a book that is so prevalent with, uh, prevalently used as a book for promoting heresy? Because it's a transitional book. Because we're going from Old to New Testament. And that's basically what the Gospels do. They help take us from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Okay, so you have to be very careful with that, all right? And we're going to note a couple of those instances where maybe it could be very confusing and try to maybe put it to rest. <clears throat> I'm not telling you that the Bible's that complicated that you can't understand it. I'm just telling you that if you're not careful, you can get tripped up in the Bible. Because it's just a reality. People are tripped up all the time. Why are there so many different religions in the world? 
there's only one Bible preacher, how come there's so many different denominations, so many different so different religions? Because people don't doctrinally figure out the Word of God. They get all tripped up on things. They major on minors, or they take things that don't belong to them, and they apply them, and they say, okay, this is for us, when really, in reality, it's not for us. And we're going to note the book of Matthew is one of those cases, in many cases. It's, it's a very difficult. There's a number of applications, but doctrinally, we have to be very careful there. Let's have a quick word of prayer, and then we'll look through these, this book uh, a little bit more thoroughly. Father, we thank you for these next few moments that we have together. Thank you for the music and, Lord, just for the, uh, the great time we had. Uh, Lord, I just enjoyed that uh, piano special earlier during the offertory. That was wonderful. And just the ladies did such a great job tonight, silent singers. And, Lord, just uh, the congregation even and the choir. Boy, Lord, we just thank you for that wonderful message and song. And, Lord, just uh, thank you for those that have gathered tonight. May our hearts be stirred from your word. May we learn something. May we grow. May we be encouraged. We'll thank you. We'll praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> now, we start talking about uh, the Gospels. We think about Matthew. Matthew, the book of Matthew, uh, again, understand, again, the four books of the, these Gospels bridge the Old to the New Testament. So there's going to be some things going on in those books that are very important. First of all, we see in Matthew that Jesus Christ is portrayed as the King of the Jews. In Matthew, he's portrayed as the king of the Jews. So it doesn't matter probably what uh, you know, uh, New Testament survey course you'd ever take, you're going to hear that same thing, that Matthew uh, is portrayed as king of the Jews, or portrays Jesus Christ as uh, king of the Jews. In Mark, as you go to the book of Mark, you'll see that the Lord Jesus Christ is portrayed as a servant. You know, you'll see a lot of things uh, there in the book of Mark. He's always busy. He's always active. He's doing things constantly, and we see that uh, is, the, is the case. In the book of Luke, he's portrayed as the Son of Man. And again, as the Son of Man, we see his earthly ministry to the nation of Israel. And of course, it reveals his humanity to us. We see his humanity in the book of Luke. In the book of John, we, he's portrayed as the Son of God, which again, being the Son of God, you know, reveals to us his deity. And so, <clears throat> again, Matthew, he's as the, the King of the Jews. We see him in Mark as a servant. We see him in Luke, the son of man. In John, we see him as the son of God. And so those four books come together and they give us a very well-rounded picture of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> you, know, um, uh, the, the, you know, if you were going to take uh, those four books, you could make them one piece. They're really, they're talking about one thing. You could take a big, uh, take a pie, for example, cut a pie into four pieces and you say, well, which piece do you want? And you could say, I want that piece, this piece, this one, or this one. You know what? It wouldn't really matter because they're all part of the same pie, unless one's a little bigger than the other. <clears throat> then it would matter to me. <clears throat> of course, I'd want the little one because I'm, you know, very trying to stay. No, you don't believe that? Okay. All right. So anyway, you're probably right. You're more close than I am really probably at that point. But we're going to note that, that these four books are all part of the same pie, so to speak. They give us a good picture of Jesus Christ. And uh, again, those are the four areas that they predominantly deal with concerning him and his life and his ministry. <clears throat> now, these four books deal with the reinstatement of the kingdom of heaven. Remember, we talked about the kingdom of heaven in the, the Old Testament, and we showed how early on in the book of Genesis, right there in the beginning, in, in the Garden of Eden, that there was uh, Adam, of course. He was the uh, the Son of God, the Bible says, and, and we saw both kingdoms. We saw the kingdom of heaven. We see the kingdom of God present. We know that in the fall, we lost the kingdom of God. Now we have the kingdom of heaven, and we've seen it being carried on through the descendants of Noah, the descendants of Abraham, right on into the nation of Israel, right on up through till 
Coniah comes along and ultimately God removes uh, the kingdom of heaven and the times of the Gentiles begins in 606 B.C. So we note that taking place and we saw all that happening. And then, of course, in the book of Malachi, there are 400 years of silence, we said. And so those 400 years of silence are broken by the voice of one crying in the wilderness by the name of John the Baptist. And there's John the Baptist, of course, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And people say, oh, obviously those are the same kingdoms. No, no, they may be used interchangeably at times, but they are extremely different. One being a physical kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, directly related to Israel and the, the, the reign of Jesus Christ on the throne of David during the millennial reign. And then, of course, we have uh, the kingdom of God, which is a spiritual kingdom. And uh, there you go. So I kind of just gave you a quick summary of the Old Testament there, okay? Now, here we are now in the New Testament, <clears throat> and this, uh, uh, this, we're going to reinstate the kingdom of heaven, or at least attempt to, and uh, the, we're going to introduce the Messiah here in these books as well. Set the stage for the second coming of Christ, and uh, then, we're, then these, these are going to tell about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as well. So that's what we're going to see in these books, okay? Uh, again, introducing the Messiah. Of course, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. We're going to begin to set the stage for the second coming of Christ and then, of course, reveal His death, burial, and resurrection. So we see that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, again, <clears throat> we said that they all address Christ in a different way. And again, the first book that must be understood is the first one chronologically in the Bible in the New Testament, which is Matthew. Okay? If you understand Matthew doctrinally, then Mark, Luke, and John will just fall into place. It's no big deal. It's not that tough. But you've got to be careful in Matthew. As I said already, Matthew is a book which basically transitions. It's the major transitional book between the two Testaments. And therefore, because of that, you know, millions and millions of people have messed up, have tripped up, and gotten all uh, fouled up because they've stumbled over Matthew. They've made mistakes along the way. They did not understand doctrinally who it was written to and for and what it's all about. So <clears throat> the first thing we need to know when we come to the book of Matthew is that there are no Christians in Matthew. You have to understand that. There are no Christians in Matthew. Now again, we discussed this already, but uh, you know, uh, until Matthew chapter 27 verse 50, uh, we are still in the Old Testament. Okay? And you say, well, what are you talking about? Well, remember we talked about Hebrews? Take your Bible again, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16. <clears throat> In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16, we, we've noted this already, we've talked about it, but let's just remind ourselves once again, because it's a very important passage, and, and it helps us to understand what, what I'm talking about and, and biblically uh, confirm what I just said. But in Matthew chapter 9, verse 16, notice that the Bible says, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. So again, whatever takes place in the book of Matthew before Jesus Christ dies, okay, before the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is Old Testament. Because there's no death of the testator, therefore the covenant is not enforced. It's not, it's not being, there's no power to it. So we know that the first covenant was, was not good in the sense that it was not able to save, but we saw that there was a need for a second covenant according to Hebrews. Well, in this particular verse, it's saying that 
that covenant was not enforced till after the death of the testator. So basically we're in the Old Testament still. So here's the point. Uh, when do Christians first arise in the New Testament? You don't ever hear the word Christian even used till Acts chapter 11. So 11 verse 26, they, were, they first called them Christians where? In Antioch. So New Testament Christianity is found in the New Testament, not the Old. And Matthew up till 2750 is Old Testament. So we know in the book of Matthew there are no Christians. That's important to understand. Because what we're going to see then is that when God's speaking and dealing with people in the book of Matthew, He's not dealing with Christians. Okay? You're freaking out already, right? You're going, this guy's lost his marbles. Well, let's just keep going. So the big key is, is, as we talked about, remember we talked about that there are three different applications of Scripture. We said there are what? Historical. We said there's doctrinal. And then there's inspirational. Okay? We understand that. Okay? So we can place Matthew historically, uh, doctrinally. There's no Christians, so he's dealing with the Jews still. And then inspirational. We can make all kinds of inspirations, but we have to be careful that we are balanced, understanding that he's not dealing with us directly. Now, again, the first concern is doctrine. And your Bible will never make sense to you unless you understand the doctrine. And when you get doctrine straight, then everything else falls into place. So what's the doctrinal context of Matthew? Well, um, as we mentioned earlier, it's Christ representing himself as the king of Israel to the nation of Israel. It's not to, it's not to Christians. He's, he's, he's presenting himself as the king of Israel, king of the Jew to the nation of Israel. Not, not to Christians. So you got to be careful because anybody that tries to take anything out of this book, the book of Matthew, it tries to take it directly out of the book of Matthew and apply it to you directly. Well, you got to ask yourself, well, how's that apply to me directly? I'm a Christian. There's no Christians there. Okay? Now, again, you, you may, be, may or may not be following me, but... That, that's what you have to understand, okay? So once you understand that, you begin to see where so many people are getting messed up. Now, even though there are no Christians in Matthew, of course, there are a thousand, thousands and thousands of liberal preachers who preach what is often called the social gospel. You ever hear of social gospel? And, and again, some of you say, well, what is that? Well, the social gospel comes from Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We often refer to those as the Sermon on the Mount, and, and that's a good... That's a good designation. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus Christ is speaking. He's giving the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, I just watched Ben-Hur not long ago. Just the other day, actually. It was a little while ago. Very long movie, by the way, but I have it on DVD. I just bought it. It was awesome, okay? But anyway, I, I, I like Ben-Hur. And I remember Jesus. He's going to start giving the Sermon on the Mount. And all these people gather up there on the Mount, uh, you know, and... Uh, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are this, and blessed are that. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And um, the social gospel, those that emphasize the social gospels teach, basically, the social gospel is a plan of salvation for all Christians, that Christians, uh, Christians are to live right and do right and to help people and to meet needs and to provide for others, and that's kind of the means of being saved. And yet the problem is there's no Christians in the passage. You get where I'm going with this? So they're applying that truth directly to us and saying, you know, uh, you know, this is how this is the 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 the, the um, um, blueprint for getting to heaven. 
you have to do this and this and this and this and this and blessed are they and blessed are they and blessed are they. And if you'll just follow through with that and you'll help people, then you'll be good to go. Um, when we think about that particular g- doctrine, um, we also know that basically the philosophy um, of today is simply help your fellow man, right? Be good to the, your fellow man. Well, every premillennial, every fundamental organization from the 1700s and the 1800s that's messed up today has fallen because of the social gospel. Every one of them. The Salvation Army is a perfect example of this. Salvation Army, listen to me, back in the 1800s up until about the mid-1900s, I'm going to tell you, the Salvation Army was about reaching souls in the depths of depravity. I mean, they were at it, man. I mean, they were on it. I mean, they'd march up and down the streets, banging drums, boom, 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 I mean, they were out there, man, up and down the streets, drawing crowds. They'd go in front of bars and they would preach the gospel. Man, they'd flip that drum over and people would go down there and kneel down at that drum and get saved. People got saved. But what happened? They bought into the social gospel. All of a sudden, they started hearing, you know, having some of their leadership tell them, well, we have to abide by the Sermon on the Mount. We have to love people. We have to do this. We have to do that according to the Sermon on the Mount. According, you know, we have to follow the example of Jesus Christ and feed the multitudes. And we have to clothe the multitudes. We have to house the multitudes. That's our first priority. That's really the big key. It was their downfall. Oh, they do a lot of wonderful things for people. Don't misunderstand me. But people don't get to heaven because of the Salvation Army anymore. You say, how do you know? Because I was in it. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I know what it... I, I'm not, I wasn't there very long. I was only up to about 12 years of age. But I, I didn't get saved there. But I learned that you need to be a good person. You need to do good things for others. And you need to give and support and meet needs. Wait a second. Social gospel. We've got to be careful. The social gospel is rooted in the book of Matthew. But the problem is there's no Christians there. So how can it be a format, a blueprint for Christianity? It isn't. General Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, would turn over in his grave today. If he came back and seen what that organization has turned into. And, and listen, I, I love, I, I, I wish they'd get back on track again because that was a going outfit. They were making it happen years ago. <clears throat> but they're, they're the perfect example of that. Let's go a little further now in Matthew and look at some more reasons you've got to be careful. In Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, we'll read some scripture there in a little bit, but actually verse chapter 13, but in Matthew chapter 12, the corporate nation of Israel. Again, when we deal with a nation, we're dealing with a group. Now, individuals may, you know, speak. For instance, when Jesus Christ was crucified, you know, it says that the leaders, the leaders wanted him to die, right? Well, then they got the people, crucify him, crucify him. Now, was all of Israel gathered together that day when they said crucify him? Not all of Israel. It was only one city. And yet the whole nation is seen there, represented there. As a nation, they rejected their Messiah. Even though not every individual was there, as a nation, they rejected 
their Messiah. When their council rejected Christ, the nation rejected Christ. Do you understand? Corporately. Now what we find then is in chapter 12, the corporate nation of Israel, through their leaders of course, commits the unpardonable sin. You've heard of the unpardonable sin, right? Well, of course, what they did was they saw the Lord Jesus Christ performing all these miracles. These miracles were proving to the multitudes that He was the Messiah, that He was the the chosen one, that He was the one that had come to redeem fallen man, that He was the one that came to ultimately sit on the throne of David and rule and reign to once again elevate Israel back to their, their status of preeminence again among the nations. But they rejected Him. Matter of fact, they didn't just reject him. They accused him of doing those miracles in the power of Satan. Okay, they said, he's doing this by the power of Beelzebub. He's doing this by the power of Satan. And, and so, when they did that, God said basically, all right, you just cut your own throats now. You messed up big time. So the kingdom of heaven that was being offered to them that physical kingdom where he would rule and reign on the throne goes into mystery form now. You say, what do you mean? Well, he begins to speak to them in what's called parables. He starts to talk to them in parables. Now, I know one preacher, he doesn't even call them parables, he calls them terribles. Because so many people get messed up on these things. They get really messed up on them. The very next chapter now, chapter 12 is when they accuse Jesus of doing these miracles in the power of Satan. They commit what is called the unpardonable sin. By the way, if you're a Christian, last time I checked when you get saved, you can't commit an unpardonable sin. Matter of fact, you know that I watch people commit sins all over the place doing all kinds of things, and yet if they'll turn to Jesus Christ and receive Him as their Savior, even if they've been a Satan worshiper, they can be saved. I guess that unpardonable sin doesn't apply to Christians because why? There aren't any Christians in Matthew. It's the nation of Israel he's dealing with here. Well, you can get all messed up on this book if you don't understand the doctrine. It'll confuse you. And so you have people come to you, well, you know, I know about somebody that committed the unpardonable sin. Really? What did he do? He blasphemed the Holy Ghost. He blasphemed the Holy Ghost. What did he do? Well, he attributed the works of God to Satan. Okay? That's supposed to mean he can never be saved again. He committed the unpardonable sin. I, I don't get it. You know what I'm saying? First of all, that's not usually what they think the unpardonable sin is. But, but anyway, that's, that's... Wait a second. I don't, see that in the, I don't see that among Christianity today. You can get saved. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? Repentance. There's no unpardonable sin here. There's, not, there's no such thing in Christianity today. There is no sin that's bigger than the blood of Christ. I mean, are we in agreement on that? I mean, so it, it doesn't exist is all I'm saying. Again, it's, it's one of those areas that in the book of Matthew you get all messed up if you don't understand the doctrine of it. So what happens then? Here they are in chapter 12, and the very next chapter... He begins to give these parables, these uh, terribles, as that one preacher would call them. And um, I've heard it said, I, I've heard it said this in Bible college, I heard it, and then I read in a book the other day, uh, somebody said the same thing. They said, what's a parable? They said, it's an earthly truth veiled in a heavenly language. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? 
I like it. Sounds good. It's an earthly truth veiled. And have, have you ever read the parables? You're looking at them going, hmm. Hmm. What's that mean? Well, it's an earthly truth veiled in a heavenly language, I heard. That sounds real nice, doesn't it? But it isn't right. <laughs> it's not what the Bible says that they are. It's not how the Bible defines them. You know what a definition of a parable is? Let me give it to you. Here it is. You ready? Here it is. A parable is an exact, infallible truth given in veiled form for the express purpose of messing somebody up who comes to God dishonestly and rejects what the Bible says. That's what a parable is. You say, whoa, 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 wait a second. Remember now, hold on before we go any further. Remember the previous chapter, chapter 12. Israel has done what? They have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. They've accused Him of doing all those miracles in the power of Satan himself, the power of the devil. And then the very next chapter, <clears throat> chapter 13, begins like this. Matthew 13, 1. Look at it. <clears throat> Matthew 13, 1. The very next chapter. Notice how it starts. It says, The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside. You say, what's that supposed to prove? The same day. I want you to see that for a second. It's the same day as chapter 12 now. So what happened was, they, they, they accused the Lord Jesus Christ of casting out demons. They accused the Lord Jesus Christ of doing the miracles He did in the power of Satan. And that very same day, He begins to speak to them in parables now. <clears throat> now look, if you would, verse 10 of Matthew 13. The disciples come and they ask him a very simple question. The disciples came and said unto him, verse 10, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? Why are you doing that, Jesus? <clears throat> you were being pretty plain with us earlier. Now you're speaking in parables. Why are you talking to them in parables? Why are you preaching and teaching in parables? <clears throat> Jesus didn't say that I'm trying to share an earthly truth veiled in a heavenly language. That's not what he said. Notice what he does say. Matthew 13, verse 11 now. <clears throat> We're going to read through verse 17. Here's what he says. He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, for him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, <clears throat> and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. <clears throat> Excuse me. But blessed are your eyes, for they shall see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. 
Again, notice, it's an exact, infallible truth given in veiled form for the express purpose of messing someone up who comes to God dishonestly, who rejects what the Bible has to say. That's what it is. It's very simple, isn't it? And someone says, but that's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to try to trip people up. Why would he try to do that? You say, God wouldn't do a thing like that. He's a God of love. He's a God of truth. He's a God of mercy. Okay, well, let's read it again. He answered and said unto them, verse 11, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, he shall, uh, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing you shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing you shall, you shall see and shall not perceive. For the people's heart is wax gross, their ears are dull of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see and with their ears, eyes and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. I don't think we need to read any further, but Jesus gave an exact, infallible truth in parable form to mess up those who rejected the Word of God. Tripping them up. <clears throat> Listen, you don't go to God's Word with preconceived ideas. You don't go to God's word and decide you're going to tell God how it goes. Because you're going to be all messed up. You're going to end up in the same mess that Israel did. There's an application for you. But remember now, we're not dealing with Christians in the sense we're dealing with a nation, Israel here. We're dealing with the kingdom of heaven that has been lost as a result of them rejecting their, 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 their Messiah. Now he gives 12 parables here in the book of Matthew. Most of them Matthew 13, Matthew 25. And those 12 parables are kingdom of heaven parables, they're called. And um, they correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel, of course. And um, again, they deal with Israel's rejection of the Messiah. And so it all fits together. Again, doctrine, they have nothing to do with us as Christians. But they do have to do with Israel and with the coming kingdom. And so we can make inspirational application. We can make all kind of, uh, of interesting messages out of them. And boy, they can be positive and encouraging and helpful. But we do have to be very careful doctrinally that we don't lose sight of the doctrinal application of Matthew itself. Um, <clears throat> I want to go just a little bit further and we'll be done. But Matthew, I want to give you a classic example of a particular passage in Matthew uh, which gets people mixed up, messes them up, okay? Um, This particular passage is used to teach that Christians can lose their salvation. Okay? Turn to Matthew 25. Again, we're dealing with a parable now. You and I have already discussed in the past that passage in the book of Matthew chapter 24, remember? Where in chapter 24... It said, you know, except you endure to the end, you, you, you cannot be saved. <clears throat> well, we know that that, that that doesn't match New Testament doctrine. It doesn't, even, it doesn't match up. Why? Again, the book of Matthew. We still haven't gotten out of the Old Testament yet. A passage is dealing with a nation. It's dealing with, uh, God's dealing with nations. He's not dealing with us individuals yet. So we, we find that there. But watch what happens here as well. Matthew chapter 25 
and verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps, took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage. And the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Wow. Whew. So half those were lost. You get where I'm going now? Do you, you see it? Boy, you could, man, I'll tell you what, if you're not careful, you get all messed up there. I mean, you, you, we all got, we all had oil at one time. We all got the lamps. But all of a sudden, we've been slumbering. First of all, you're supposed to be watching and waiting. But nonetheless, here they are slumbering. And all of a sudden, the, the Lord returns. They say, hey, I, I've got my oil. You got your oil? No, I need oil. Can you share me with your oil? No, I can't share. Because if I give you my oil, then none of us will have enough to get there. So go buy some. First, you don't buy salvation either. But anyway, so they leave. And by the time they get back, the door's shut at the marriage. Too late. You're done. Kind of reminiscent of Matthew chapter 7, isn't it? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I knew you not. Okay, sounds very similar. Now again, what we have here, we, we have a passage here. The student of the Word of God has to find out what the Bible really says, right? Isn't that really the key? When we start studying the Bible, it's not how we feel, it's not what we think, it's what God says that matters. So, in a previous lesson, we noted some of the basic rules of Bible study. And one of those first rules that we talked about was that we must determine the context. So let's figure out what the context of chapter 25 is. I want you to look at the first verse. Notice it says in chapter 25, verse 1, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins. Do you see that? Then shall the what? Kingdom of heaven be likened unto. The kingdom of heaven is going to be likened unto something. Immediately in the passage, right off the bat, chapter 25, verse 1, we're given the context of the passage. What's the context of the passage? The kingdom of what? Heaven. So that means then that the context is the Jewish kingdom of heaven to be established when Jesus Christ returns to this earth. That's the context. It's a physical kingdom. It's going to be established. He says, I'm going to give you a picture of it. I'm going to let you see it firsthand. This is what we're dealing with. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto. That's the context now. Not the church is likened unto. The body of Christ is likened unto. No, the kingdom of heaven is. When you get saved, you're not put into the kingdom of heaven. You're put into the kingdom of God. Actually, the kingdom of God moves into you. You understand? So what we see here is that, is that for someone to teach Christians can lose their salvation from this particular passage is downright ridiculous. Because there aren't Christians there. 
And the context is simple. The kingdom of heaven. So what we learn is we have to be very careful when we deal with the book of Matthew. Why? Because it'll get you messed up if you don't consider and watch every single word. Just watch it close. Ask yourself, what's the context? And I know this is a little bit confusing, maybe. It might be. But realize again that there's that great division. There's that Old Testament. There's that New Testament. Those four Gospels bridge the Old to the New. Therefore, there's going to be transition taking place from Old to New Testament. We're going to see as we get in the book of Acts, we're going to see there's a lot of transition taking place in the book of Acts, too. We're going to see that we're going not only from the Old to the New Testament, we're going to be going from the law to grace. We're going to be, not only that, we're going to be going from the, the, the nation of Israel to the church. There's all kind of transition taking place. And sometimes it's very confusing. But if you can get your doctrine straight in these couple of areas, you'll be amazed how things begin to fall into place. And all of a sudden, those tough questions that people want to ask you, they're not that tough. Because God's word's very clear on them. You just have to rightly divide the word of truth. And when you begin to rightly divide the word of truth, everything comes into focus. I didn't say it's going to be easy. It takes work. You've got to study your Bible. See, it's not enough to just do your devotion in the morning. You've got to study your Bible. It's not enough just to know a few of the stories. You've got to know your Bible. You've got to know doctrine. You've got to know what Matthew's about. It's talking about the king of the Jews. You've got to know what Mark's about, showing him as a servant. You've got to realize that in Luke, he's the son of man, and in John, he's the son of God. He's deity. And you begin to understand things. You begin to put those things together. Boy, they make things come alive. So the purpose of those first four books of the New Testament are to bridge the gap between the Old and New Testament and ultimately to reveal the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that too. So that's what we learn from this first portion. And as we begin next week, we're going to look at the book of Acts. Acts is great. It's wonderful. There's so much going on in the book of Acts, though. It's, it's a, I mean, it is a crossword puzzle of, of, of just, it's wonderful. It's, it's awesome. And so the Bible's not super complicated, but there are divisions, and you have to rightly divide it. As a believer, you ought to be thirsty to learn the Word of God to want to understand the Word of God because it comes alive when you begin to get a grasp on it. And all of a sudden, it's more than a book. It's life. It's history. It's the future. It becomes what and who we are instead of just what we read from time to time. And so it's, it's pretty sweet. Now, I hope you're saved tonight. That's the most important thing. We were talking a lot about the Old Testament tonight. Do you know in the New Testament, you have the privilege of being able to come to Christ by grace through faith nothing else. Just, he opens his arms and says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Do you realize how simple that is? You and I live in the greatest period of time in the history of mankind. You say, I wish I lived in Jesus' day. Not me. No way. I wish I lived back in the 1300s. No way. I want nothing to do with the dark ages. I wish I lived back there in the early Christianity. Uh Uh-uh. I'd probably be martyred. I wish I lived in the Old Testament and I could see, you know, uh, Elijah and not me. I like this grace through faith. It's, it's awesome stuff. I get saved. It's forever. I never have to worry about anything. It's all on Jesus' back completely, 100%. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to 
take any sacrifice. I don't have to do anything like that. I just go to God in prayer and I just see God off, uh, work in my life. Man, it's a blessing. It's the greatest period of history, biblical history that there is. I, I love it. I, I'm glad I'm, I'm here. I don't want to live in the tribulation period. You don't either. If you're a child of God, you'll miss it. All right? But uh, uh, I'll be in the millennium too, see? That's a good thing. <laughs> but uh, if you're not saved, you need to get saved. And if you're a child of God, the Word of God ought to be important to you. Take the time to study it. Take the time to memorize it, meditate on it. Make it important to you. Make it important to you, okay? Uh, it's, it is. Uh, I want to challenge you. If you, you have a home, you have children in your home, why don't you talk about the Bible at least three days a week, not church days, three days other than church days. Would you do that? Just sit down with your kids and, and take a Bible story even and encourage them in the Word of God. Read it to them if you want. And then say, he believed God. She believed God. They served the Master. And God blessed them. Look how God blessed in the end. Look how God met their need in the end. I mean... Teach them the Bible. Let your family know that you believe the Word, you love the Word, and that it's important to you. And you do that by spending time in it. Just even just three days a week. Just even three days a week. If you can't, just even two then, okay? Just two then. Two days a week, and then you're still coming on Wednesday and Sunday. That'd be four days a week they're getting the Bible now. Praise the Lord, right? So just think about that. And, and start to think about applying this book to your life and really studying it. Father.